division and delay at the UN as the world tries to work out exactly what message or demand it wants to make of Israel. Politics inside the country continues as ever. And we'll hear from a national treasure here in Britain who took an unexpected stand. It's Unholy. I'm Jonathan Friedland of The Guardian in London. And I'm Unique Levy of Channel 12 in Tel Aviv. Unholy, two Jews on the news. Brief disclaimer, this might be slightly shorter episode than usual because one of the co-hosts is in their pajamas drinking tea. Uh, and one of us is English. So uh, just uh, just a short way of telling you that I um, fractured my shoulder this week. I fell down the stairs. Uh, important lesson to all your unholy listeners. Look where you're going. And so under a substantial amount of painkillers, uh, might have some trouble connecting adjectives to nouns. Or, But as my co-host likes to say, such is my commitment to unholy <laughs> that I'm attempting to do it this way. Well, completely. <laughs> It's an act of uh, ridiculous, uh, you know, heroism on your part. You didn't have to do this. The listeners and I would have given you a pass for this week. You had a doctor's note, big time, um, but you're forging ahead, pressing ahead, anyway. Um, and so, yeah, it's um, you get you get credit just for being here, just for showing up. Uh, your need. How is the shoulder as we speak right now? Um, not great, not great. I have a doctor's note from the emergency room. That's a very shiny doctor's note. Um, but yeah, I mean, so, so much else is going on that I, I, I will, uh, you know, let go of my uh, personal issues uh, now and we will continue talking about the, the rest of what is going on, but definitely not... Um, I'll just say that when it rains, it pours. That was my feeling this week. It really does. Like you don't have enough to deal with in, <laughs> in, in the last months of 2023. This has come along. Um, well, we talk about news that, that never stops. I mean, in this case, the news out of New York has not quite materialized, let alone not stopped. Every, it's been a waiting game mm -hmm. with diplomats and reporters and others waiting for the United Nations Security Council to d debate a resolution in some form or other calling for a ceasefire and trying to come up with language that uh, the United States in particular can live with. There were some sort of smoke signals suggesting there was some language, and then it appeared that was that formulation was fine with the State Department, but not with Joe Biden's White House. And that is a split that is played out over decades where there is a slightly more you know, you don't want to say left of center, but more moderate, more sort of dovish, whatever word you want to use, on lots of issues, actually, but on Israel-Palestine, out of the State Department historically, with often presidents in the White House holding the line. We, You know, last week, you and I, when you had your conversation with uh, Jake Sullivan, National Security Advisor, we talked about where exactly the US administration is on, on this issue. And the signs are that Joe Biden is still holding firm in his support for Israel to the extent that he is even standing up to, as it were, his own State Department, as well as the other four permanent members of the Security Council, in not greenlighting a resolution that would be, you know, too demanding, as he would see it, and certainly as Israel would see it, on Israel. So as yet, no language. Lots of back and forth internationally. Um, a couple of European leaders floating this phrase, sustainable ceasefire, which when you look at it closely, sort of means a ceasefire where everything 
is resolved and everything done and Israel is, is content. And people, you know, point out, well, that could be months away. So is that really meaningful? You know, it's a big argument about language. But what it comes down to is that old question we've talked about. How long exactly does the international community and Washington in particular give Israel? Yeah, and I think something was, if one thing was clear from that interview with uh, Jake Sullivan, uh, US National Security Advisor, what he is saying is, again, this war against Hamas is going to be a long war. You know, he, he even singled out the uh, heads of Hamas in Gaza that need to be assassinated by Israel. I mean, he, he basically said it when, and I'm paraphrasing, but I mean, he, he did name the names. There is an argument about this high intensity stage and how long it should last. Again, the calls for ceasefire never give a good enough answer to Israel for the, you know, the pressing question after uh, October 7th, which is, and then what? If you're suggesting that uh, Israel lives next to the devil that did this to uh, this country once and says it will do it again and again, and also at the same with the same breath say ceasefire, then what are you actually suggesting? Um, which is a big question. What is on the table from the Israeli perspective is, of course, another sort of period of a cessation of violence to release more hostages. That is the conversation going on now between Israel, uh, Qatar, and the United States, who are very involved in this, trying to get out more Israeli hostages. We know that it uh, uh, blew apart last time because Israel demanded to release the remaining women held uh, by Hamas. Uh, Hamas didn't want to do that. The whole world finally realized what that meant. Now the categories have been, according to uh, reports, been expanded to say that Hamas will release something between 30 to 40 Israeli hostages, which will include women, the injured, and older men. Hamas, always a participant in uh, psychological warfare, also released a, a video of three uh, older men in captivity to sort of pressure the Israeli public, but definitely as is the Israeli public all know more and more on what these hostages have been going through, it's of course very much the interest of Israel to release them as as quickly as possible, 76 uh, days into this war. And just on that point about the broadcast of the the video message, did Israeli networks broadcast that hostage video or did they hold back? Look, generally speaking, there is no handbook on uh, how to deal with what we have been dealing with and the dilemmas of what to air and what not when Hamas is putting out this kind of uh, warfare. Generally, what we have decided to do, and we're pretty much sticking to it, is not to show the video in its entirety. Uh, right. Because what they usually do is they force the hostages to say certain things. And so we don't show the video, but we do take a sort of a screenshot of them because it's important also for their families to know sure. this is a, a sign of life from them. But we don't, you know, we don't play the whole thing so as not to uh, play along with Hamas's uh, psychological warfare. You can yeah. argue about this, obviously, in the age of social media, if you should do this or not. But but this is what we have been uh, doing throughout uh, these two and a half months. Yeah, no, I also just because I think a lot of people are interested in how the war is seen, each aspect of it is seen to viewers in Israel. It makes good sense that you wouldn't want to be carrying messages uh, which are in effect aimed at you know psychological effects and propaganda i mean on the on the point about the diplomatic um deliberations and whether or not any kind of cessation can be brokered two events that happened in the since you and i last spoke that have that form part of the this diplomatic environment the first is in terms of pressure on israel to ceasefire is this milestone and people knew it was coming 
of uh, Hamas via the uh, health ministry in Gaza, saying that the milestone of 20,000 dead had been passed. Uh, you and I on this podcast have often made a point of saying how many of those will actually be Hamas men, uh, you know, armed men, rather than, as I think the figure is often understood outside, being civilians. Uh, you know, it could be anything between seven, eight, nine thousand of that 20,000 that could be Hamas fighters and therefore that you know puts a different gloss on it but that has added Israel's to version is usually a third of uh something around the third of that right. number uh, so is, that would be is, around is the 7000 mark mm -hmm. and then and so but but nevertheless that milestone figure of 20000 has added to that pressure joe biden feels it from within his own party it's definitely there in western capitals which says in a very simple some would say simplistic way enough enough people have died too enough the Fighting has gone on too long, just stop. There's that pressure on a lot of political leaders. And then on the other hand, completely different kind of pressure, but also in favor of pausing, is from hostage families in Israel saying, we fear for our loved ones as long as this bombardment or fighting is continuing. Please stop in order to make it uh, more possible for them to get out. And that, or to be, you know, ex uh, for there to be some kind of uh, release. And that pressure got louder again after you and I spoke at the end of last week with this supremely tragic development which um well why don't you tell us you what people will know what happened but you tell us how that you know what happened and what the aftermath of that was yeah, I mean, it's definite that this week uh, all of it uh, is conducted uh, under the shadow of the three Israeli hostages being shot dead tragically by Israeli soldiers. It happened in Sajaiya on Friday. They were held for 70 days and they managed to somehow um, release themselves. There were so, I mean, when you go through this terrible, terrible, it's just a tragedy of errors, really, a litany of mistakes, um, one after the other. They did everything right. Now we know that, first of all, they were shot accidentally by uh, Israeli soldiers, even though they were uh, walking with a white flag. Also, an another thing that is uh, known is that they um, tried to actually put out a sign where they were held captive, saying in Hebrew, there are hostages here. So that is also a point. We now know also that they were recorded on an IDF's camera, on a canine, but that wasn't checked. I mean, everything in this story is just a terrible tragedy. We think about the fact that these heroic three Israelis managed to actually run away from the people who were holding them uh, captive. And the end of this story is the fact that they were shot dead uh, by Israeli soldiers. The mother of Yotam Chaim recorded a message uh, to the soldiers uh, yesterday saying, I'm not angry, I'm not upset at you. I know that you're under a uh, tremendous pressure and I love you, which really is just the most amazing. You know, just think of the... What this woman went through and and what she's managed to do. I mean, this is really a, a terrible story in a in, yeah. in a very long period of of many terrible stories. I mean, just a few things about that. The the, the some of the detail that's been coming out is uh, extraordinary. You've mentioned some of it, but this sign that they did. I think they had to stain the them made the letters by using food to mm -hmm. sort of stain the sheet to to send the message. Uh, you mentioned the canine. I, I don't know whether everyone gets that. That literally means a camera strapped to a dog that went into one of these houses and filmed 
the hostages speaking, saying we're here, and yet no one monitored that feed. I mention that partly because a story from October the 7th itself was the failures but of intelligence and military failures. And we've always said there will be a huge inquiry, inquest afterwards. I just wonder if this adds to that sense that there are still questions to answer even ongoing uh, during this conflict about the degree of, of sort of competence in the IDF and in intelligence when you've got a feed like that and people just aren't looking at it. I asked that uh, question. Uh, but just on the sort of fallout of it, I've certainly heard, you know, families of hostages, and there always was this tension between the two objectives. On the one hand, mm -hmm. defeat Hamas, degrade them, uh, prevent them being a viable fighting force on the one hand. On the other, the other objective of this war, get the hostages out. And there are hostage families, and they're there in Hostages Square opposite the Defence Ministry, who are saying, you know, stop, uh, ceasefire only so that we can get these start talking and get our loved ones home. And that oddly is, you know, they are on a lot of international media because that chimes with some of the diplomatic pressure in this country coming from a very different direction. We, we, we can agree also saying ceasefire, but it has a huge moral authority when you have on the BBC and other places hostage families saying, we too have had enough for completely different reasons. We don't think you can simultaneously bombard. Uh, Gaza and make it safe for our loved ones. And so there's pressure from outside on the Israeli government and from inside. Right. The, we should say that the hostages' families are saying, you can continue this war after. They're not saying stop the war. Just oh, absolutely. But they cool. are saying you must, the first priority here is to get our loved ones out. We understand what they're going through. Every day is, is an eternity there. Just get them out. And you're right that this has become a much more prominent voice after this tragedy in Suja'iya. Uh, and the government is going to have a very hard time trying to continue to convince Israelis, no, no, but the, the war is actually putting pressure on Hamas, which is what they have been uh, saying uh, for a while now. Yeah. And, and this, of course, is the subject already of an inquiry, but the firing on people without shirts and with waving a white flag has raised questions about what the rules of engagement are, because obviously, you know, under conventional rules, you wouldn't be firing at people wearing, waving a white flag without shirts. We know that Hamas is not a conventional enemy in any way and do not themselves respect any kind of rules of war. But that too is a question, an uncomfortable one being asked of Israel. I anticipate the response that some people might say to that, I too do notice that plenty of people who are now criticizing on this ground have suddenly found it in them to be upset and worried about the plight of hostages. Now with these three, they're concerned, mm -hmm. having not really ever mentioned hostages before, now they're saying it because they're using it to raise questions about Israel's rules of engagement. Mm -hmm. Nevertheless, I think there are real questions there to answer about how it yeah. came to be. We get the fact it was a terrible error, but how it it came to be that they were, somebody thought it was okay to fire on people shirtless and waving the white flag. Yeah, I mean, what the, the soldiers themselves are saying that the, they did confirm that they saw a white cloth. They said that they didn't have time to make sense of the situation. I'll tell you this, Jonathan, I, I, <laughs> I did my military service, um, not in a combat unit. I did um, go to firing uh, exercises every month. So I did hold a gun every once in a while, but I really 
have a hard time trying to understand what's going through the mind of a 19-year-old soldier uh, that's been in Gaza for 70 days, seeing their friends killed or wounded, knowing that death lurks everywhere, knowing there are terrorists over everywhere, the ground could open up under their feet and reveal a Hamas tunnel. So I don't, I, I, I feel a little bit uneasy judging them, but I do, I agree that there are very, very tough questions to be asked about what happened there. Uh, it's a very fine line to, to walk, uh, but there, there should be questions uh, asked about this incident, particularly because it ended in, in really such a terrible way. Yeah, I, I mean, it's an impossible situation all round. Um, it does add to what I mentioned before, these, there are domestic pressures, meaning that politics in, in Israel does not stop and has not stopped, even though the country is at war. Yes. Look, there uh, is a poll that's a very interesting one that we uh, published on Channel 12 this week that I, I sort of want to go through it. Um, maybe it's a little bit granular, but I think it's important to understand where we are and where the trends uh, are. And we've seen this for a while. We should say, first of all, that in the polls, the question that the main question is always, if the elections were held today, who, which party would you vote for? So uh, Netanyahu's Likud continuing to be very, very uh, low in this poll, 18 seats. We will remind our listeners that the current Likud has 32 seats. Benny Gantz's National Unity Party at 37 in this poll. Again, today in the Knesset, they have 12 seats. So this, and, and we sh maybe we should just zoom out on that and remind our listeners that Israeli prime ministers during a war tend to be very popular in the polls, even if they're toppled after. So that includes Ehud Olmert during the Second Lebanon War. That includes Golda Meir uh, during uh, the Yom Kippur War. Netanyahu is incredibly unpopular here. And when you take the question, that is, who is suitable to be prime minister, you see Benny Gantz opening up even a bigger gap than he had. He's 45%, Netanyahu is 27%. The interesting name in that questionnaire was Naftali Bennett, uh, the former prime minister and a very, uh, let's say, arrival to Netanyahu. The same question, who's suitable to be prime minister at this time? Bennett got 33% and Netanyahu got 29 I'm going to add just one more question. And then I, I want to say something else that's pretty interesting. Another question that we asked is, do you support passing over the Gaza Strip to the Palestinian Authority after the war? 54% were against, 19% support it, 27% don't know. Now, why is this important? Because it shows you that there is a growing gap between the Israeli right, Israel is moving to the right because of this war, but they're not moving with Benjamin Netanyahu. And that is an interesting development that should be pointed out, I think, when you, when you read the details of this poll. It really is interesting that that high number opposing uh, Palestinian Authority involvement in Gaza the day after, that will come as disappointing news to the Joe Biden White House. Jake Sullivan, in his interview with you last week, said a revitalized, revamped PA is more or less the only option they can see for taking over Gaza. And there's the Israeli electorate via your poll saying not so much. Yeah, but can I make a point about that? Yeah. First of all, this has been Netanyahu pushing this point over and over over the last couple of weeks. Second, just to be the sort of the voice of logic here, no one actually thinks that this will pass to the Palestinian Authority a day after the war. 
it's clear even to, to every even to the Biden administration and to the Israelis and to everyone that there would be an interim period in which was though there will be some sort of security element of Israel inside the Gaza Strip. Not No one talks about automatically passing this on. What this means is, Jonathan, that people are listening to Netanyahu's message being hammered over and over, but they're not listening to him. That, I think, is the interesting part of this question. Yeah, I think the uh, the notion that the country is going rightward but not with him is fascinating and laid bare by that poll. I think Naftali Bennett will be very pleased by that number, given that even when he was prime minister, he was there with just a tiny party, six seats, I think, in his own party. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and there he is getting one in three Israelis saying he's, you know, passes the suitability test for prime minister. You can see in all of this why Benjamin Netanyahu is very keen to postpone mm-hmm. his date yeah. with the electorate because it looks like irreversibly bad news for him. That means he has an interest in keeping this war going as long as possible uh, because it keeps him still in that seat, which he needs to be given his legal woes. There are plenty of people worried by that who think it's these political calculations, it's these poll numbers that are weighing on his military strategic decisions in a way they shouldn't for somebody who is meant to be acting as a war leader. So, you know, if people wanted a change of heart from the prime minister or to be acting in a different way, your poll that your network has carried is not going to uh, make that happen anytime soon, I don't think. Yeah, I'll just make a few brief notes and stop me when this begins to um, bore you. But I will say that we we did um, float around three interesting names uh, into this poll. One is, of course, Naftali Bennett himself, uh, said to be uh, contemplating returning into the political arena. Yossi Cohen, the former head of Mossad, and tend everyone tends to think he's more to the right. And of course, Yair Golan being the, the name to unite the Israeli left. He's the uh, retired general, that one of those that took up a gun and went down south on October 7th and helped fight the fight. Um, just to say that if these people are all in the arena, then uh, it's interesting to say that Naftali Bennett would get uh, a party headed by Naftali Bennett would get 13 seats, Yossi Cohen, uh, nine seats, and uh, Yair Golan, 11 seats. By the way, in the current poll, in this, this current situation, uh, Betsalus Smotrich doesn't pass the electoral threshold uh, without these three names that I uh, mentioned. And the only party in the coalition that does grow a little bit in power is uh, Itamar Benkvil's party of uh, Jewish power. So all this is very, very interesting. As you said, and I think you, you accurately put your finger on this, Netanyahu does not want elections. He will try and buy time in any way possible, but you will start you will start seeing cracks. You might see Benny Gantz leaving this government. You might see Bezalel Smotrich realizing that he might not have a political future leaving this government. So all this points to the fact that we might be seeing uh, elections in Israel pretty soon. Yeah, I mean, just a, f- a few reactions to that. Yair Golan, I, I did see him in action uh, last month and was uh, was obviously struck by the possibility of him as being a new leader of the left. Uh, he was in the part in the Knesset for the Meretz parties. He's mm-hmm. he's not new to politics, but we've had we've talked about the exit of Labour's leader Merav Michaeli. There's a vacancy there. Can you imagine a new structure that somehow combines Labour Meretz and coalesces the Israeli left under Yair Golan? I think it's plausible, and your poll will add to that. Eleven seats is not you know revolutionary, but maybe that's a you know, but it's still more than they've got right now. And that would be 
a base to build onto. I think that is a striking number. You mentioned the former Mossad head, Yossi Cohen. I think there'll be Likud people thinking, well, there is an alternative leader there to Netanyahu. If mm -hmm. Netanyahu does go, uh, Cohen is there. And of course, there will be people alarmed, I think, by hearing of Ben Gvir's success. I think lots of people would have wanted to see the back of him, uh, but that's not likely. And in a way, is a reward, and Smotrich will be thinking this, it's something of a reward for Bengvir's strategy of dis distancing himself somewhat from this government and from the leadership of the war, but also the leadership that, as he and others might formulate it, uh, allowed October the 7th to happen through their own failures. He likes being an oppositional figure. He has positioned himself oppositionally uh, from the start, and Smotrich has not, as I understand it, in quite the same way. And therefore, there is, if you are in on the right and in opposition mode, Bengvir looks like the receptacle in a way that Smotrich does not. So I think your poll bears out in a way the strategic choices some of these people have taken. Yeah, I think I think the fact that Smotrich is the uh, finance minister and has been in the eyes of many Israelis, deaf to the requests not to move uh, millions of shekels as coalition funding to the ultra-Orthodox and to religious Zionism, but actually to move it to the war effort, I think that is hurting him very much in the polls. He looks like he's a, he appears to many Israelis to be like a finance minister that's only worried about his own coalition and his parts of his base and not to the general uh, public. I think that is hurting him a lot in the polls. Yeah, no, that makes sense. And the anger among the displaced people, I mean, you mm -hmm. know, huge numbers of people displaced from both the south and north of the country yeah. living in temporary accommodation and their fury at seeing that they are still going without some basics, apart from those provided by volunteers. We, meanwhile, the ultra-Orthodox, already the beneficiaries of huge state largesse, getting even more under not, uh, Smotrich and Netanyahu. So that dissent is all building up for the next election. I do want wonder at what point Benny Gantz thinks, look, these polls are not going to stay like this forever. At some point, I do have to, as it were, cash in my chips. But maybe he's not going to do that until this phase of the war is over well, and he can exit the war cabinet. Well, he was pretty clear on saying the first intense stage of the war will be over. The reservists come home. That's when we're going to start thinking about leaving the coalition. So that can be pretty soon, what will probably happen is that his partner, remember this uh, National Unity Party, was set as a uh, as two parties came together. It was uh, Benny Gantz's party and Gidon Saar's party. And more and more, uh, Saar used to be a member of the Likud, then he turned rival on Netanyahu, he left the Likud. More and more people are saying that actually Saar might break away and he will stay with the coalition and not go with Benny Gantz, but actually come closer to Netanyahu. Netanyahu is basically trying to pull him back into the Likud. All of this proves that there is a lot of politics going on uh, under the surface and even not completely, not as subtext, but actually as text, while Israel is still fighting this war. Yeah, and we will keep watching it uh, uh, here on Unholy. We're going to keep our eye on it even as we move into the final days of this year and into next. Um, Long-time listeners will have noticed that we put on pause our tradition of awards at the end of each podcast uh, for Mensch and for Chutzpah. It didn't feel quite right. Uh, we, you know, I, that may be coming back 
pretty soon. But if we were still doing mention chutzpah, uh, chutzpah, I think we've probably covered some of the candidates just in our <laughs> mo most recent bit of our conversation. But if we were doing mention, obviously a mention at the very least goes to you for your uh, extraordinary indefatigability and vigor in managing to come on the podcast, you'll need, even with your injury. Uh, but I think another candidate would be uh, here where I am in Britain. And I'll fill this in just a little bit by saying, you know, some people may have noticed that an, a festival is approaching in a few days, celebrating by people who aren't Jewish, and some Jews too, actually. <laughs> the usual way that is marked in Britain is that at three o'clock on Christmas Day, on the 25th of December, the monarch delivers a Christmas message. And Channel 4, which thinks of itself as a kind of plucky insurgent network in this country, always had an alternative Christmas message. Someone else would give up and broadcast a message at the same time as the, the Queen or now King Charles would, was doing theirs. This year, that honour fell to the actor, writer, uh, and sort of all-round national treasure, Stephen Fry, known to many people for his association with the Harry Potter books. He is the voice behind uh, seven of the Harry Potter audiobooks. Uh, Stephen Fry... Who are um, these people? Please tell the, me most people know him for a lot of other reasons. Yeah, okay, I think continue, I, I think there are. In fact, <laughs> you might know because as a student of this genre... I'm sorry, I'm the I'm the kid who grew up on a bit of Fry and Laurie on BBC Prime, so ah. you're you're barking down the wrong tree here. Okay. I'm like, I've been a long-time fan of Stephen Fry from a completely different... Uh, zone. So Stephen Fry, extremely well-loved and popular. He's giving this year's alternative Christmas message. And he it shows him at the beginning putting up sort of seasonal decorations. But then he it takes an unexpected turn. He says that many years ago, he thought that he was going to face a life of loneliness because he's gay and he would be, uh, you know, the exclusion, exile and disgrace would be the fate of somebody with his sexuality. And no, it hasn't turned out that way. There is acceptance, but there isn't acceptance for, he says, another part of his identity. And he turns to the camera and says, I am Stephen Fry and I am a Jew. And he says it a couple of times and says that may surprise you. It even surprises me. Talks a little bit about his background and then takes a stand on the current upsurge in anti-Semitism in Britain and around the world. Shop window smashed, he said. Stars of David and swastikas daubed on walls of Jewish properties, synagogues and cemeteries. There is real fear stalking the Jewish neighborhoods of Britain, he says. And he then urges people, viewers, to speak up and stand with Jewish people. I think it's a really brave thing of him to have done, um, not because there will, will be a backlash, and there already has been horrible, vile stuff has come his way on, on social media, but because he didn't need to do this. He's a very popular actor. He could have just kept his head down. He did not need to to join this fight or align himself with it. And yet he has. And I think when people do that, when they take some kind of stand that they didn't have to take and they made a move they didn't have to make, I think they deserve um, our recognition. So if we were handing out awards, Stephen Fry, I think would be a good candidate for this week's Mensch Award. Not arguing with you at all. And as I said, I think, you know, he is, he has talent enough for 10 people. And the amazing thing about it is, right, that he's saying it's time for Jews to stand upright and to be proud in face of this barrage of anti-Semitism that has been unleashed. And he immediately comes under attack and a barrage of anti-Semitism unleashed on him. By the way, those attacking him only proving his point, right? But I, I agree completely. And I think that if we have 
if we were returning our Mensch Awards, he deserves uh, the Mensch Award of the week for sure. We will be back, uh, Shouldergate permitting. That's the uh, <laughs> the scandal they're already calling Shouldergate. Uh, normally, we thank everyone else involved, but I'm going to thank you, Yonit, for managing to uh, somehow fight through the medication and the pain and do uh, unholy for this week. So all plaudits to you. <laughs> I appreciate that. Thank you. Um, we will say our thank yous to Gaia Glazer, Omer Primat, a special thanks to Omri Barak, and I hope we'll meet next week, Jonathan. I hope so too. Get well. <laughs>